And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning. How's everybody this morning? It's good. Oh, this is really loud. Are we okay? There we go. It's good to be together. Um, it's good to uh, tell Tashus if he's watching live, that this is one of the few times that he gets a round of applause after a song, and it's not even while he's live. I thought that was quite fun. <laughs> So a um, couple of, I, I, sometimes God just treats you, and uh, I got to hear two or three stories of how this journey that we've been on through the Exodus uh, story has had such direct implications in people's lives. One guy was telling me how just the situation that he's been in over the last couple of, uh, in fact, years, this Exodus story, he says, it felt like, I, I don't know if you know this, but Exodus means exit, and it feels like God has been walking me in my journey out of one place into a new space. I was like, wow, and so grateful to hear that story and other stories of God providing by way of work and by way of health and by way of some breakthroughs, and uh, just so grateful to be part of that and so grateful to be part of a community where we can hear the stories of God together. Um, another exciting story of God is um, that God's continuing to grow our uh, leadership team. We're always wanting to ensure that we're at a kind of healthy um, sort of leadership space, and uh, we feel like God is adding uh, one life at a time. And at the moment, our, our leadership team is made up of uh, Shireen and Mark, um, Jenny and Mike, uh, myself and Nick's, and Chris and Sarah. 
and uh, we feel that it's good with us and the Holy Spirit to bring Tawanda and Jolene onto our eldership team. And uh, what that means for us is that we're trusting that come the 20th of November, we'll have a moment here where we will ordain and bring them onto the team. Now, What's really cool is you can uh, celebrate at some point, you can pat them on the back and say hooray, Um, but what's really important is that we want to invite you into the journey, and there's two ways we invite you into this journey, because uh, a leadership team is so crucial to the health of a church. We make sure that we hold to biblical uh, kind of qualifications. Nobody just pitches up and goes, I want to pick me, pick me, you know, like donkey on Shrek, and we go, cool, let the willing come. Uh, anyone comes to Jesus, not everyone gets to uh, lead in the life of the church. And there's 1 Timothy 3, talks about biblical qualifications. Um, Jolene's not here, hey, to wonder. She's out with uh, the kids. Um, and, uh, but, but what I want to do is we, uh, maybe Tawanda, you can just stand up now and just show yourself. And it would have been nice to have, it's usually Tawanda who's out and Jolene who's in. But today it's the other way around. You can sit down, Brie. Thanks for letting me embarrass you. But... Um, 1 Timothy 3 talks about qualifications, and um, I suppose what we do is we give a bit of time for us as a, as a community to be sure that this is not just something that we as the leaders see uh, in them, but it's something that we as the team see. And this is not about not liking Tawanda's choice of face mask or his glasses or uh, fashion sense. This is about going hey, do we see any disqualifying factors according to 1 Timothy 3 that we don't know about? We really are tight buddies who are sharing everything, but we do want to give gap to be able to say elders are people who who are in good standing, and is there anything we're missing? But probably more so on the other side is we want to make sure that we can also hear the endorsements, the sense of excitement that you go, hey, are, are you sure? Is he not already an elder? Are they not already on the team? <laughs> and, uh, and to be able to go, hooray, we want to celebrate with you. And if you tell us that, I promise I won't tell him to make him feel too good about himself and get a big head. But um, that is uh, the plan. So if you've got any biblical concerns, let me know. If you've got any biblical joy, let us know, because we do want to celebrate them coming on. Does that sound good? Hooray. Praise God. So um, we're in Exodus chapter 20. Lauren beautifully read us through one of the most uh, world-changing, history-shaping pieces of literature, the Ten Commandments. You don't need to be a follower of Jesus to have heard about the Ten Commandments. It's just so famous. And and it's famous for a reason. Because Western society is is basically founded upon these premises. Prior to these Ten Commandments uh, and and prior to the values of Christianity and, and, and the Judaic worldview, these things weren't normative. I don't know if you know that. But basically what's happening in this story is you've got the people of Israel who now have been taken out of Egypt. Amazing. God in his power has defeated the gods of Egypt, the so-called gods. He's uh, done these plagues to say, hey, nope, the Nile isn't God. Nope, uh, these things aren't God. And no, Pharaoh, you're not God either. And eventually they are released. They are exited. They're exodused out, and they move out of the the place of Egypt, and they move in and towards the promised land, where no longer is Pharaoh their king, but God is their king, and he begins to rule over them. But 
400 years of slavery shapes a person. Think about it. A couple of years of, like we said a few weeks ago, a couple of years of an abusive relationship shapes a person. A traumatic experience shapes a person. Our past shapes us. It makes us who we are. Imagine 400 years under oppressive slavery where nobody cares about you, where you're working seven days a week. You are a piece of meat who's used to carry stuff around, and then you must just make sure you shut up and do what you're told, but don't cause a problem in the great empire of Egypt. You are a simple machine that's being used. That's what the people of Israel were, and many of them probably came to believe it. They didn't live in the freedom of the West where they went, I can do whatever I want. They went, I can't do anything I want, and they didn't even conceive of a world that they could do that. And so God takes them out of Egypt, and the line we keep saying, he then begins to take Egypt out of them. He begins to call them back to that first mandate in the Garden of Eden where he says, you're meant to be image bearers. And he starts to say, I am going to teach you to bear my image in the world. I'm going to teach you what it means to be a mirror whereby you are reflecting what it's like to be a person who is imaging God. You're showing the love, the mercy, the, the person of God to the world. That is your mandate. You are meant to reflect what he is like. And so the king comes to bring his rule into the people. He's a different kind of king. He's not like every other king. He's not like the Pharaoh. He's not like the surrounding nations king. He is a king who dwells with his people and begins to coach them in a new way. He begins to guide them in a way of living. And this is really what I want to talk to us today about because in so many ways, the law, the Ten Commandments, has been kind of misunderstood as just this story of death. And one day when Jesus came, he just got rid of this bad law. When actually, when God gave this law, he was the same God who gave us Jesus. And he gave this law because he wanted to coach a people into a new way of living. He wanted to coach them to become a people who were distinct, who were different, who, who caused the world around to go, whoa, what just happened there? That, that, that slave nation, they're, they're doing something different, and it's starting to work. And, and they're smiling, and, and they, they, don't, they don't sacrifice children. What? And, and they, they, they actually love each other and, and starting to function. What? And they don't, they, they're starting to marry one person at a time. And, and then their children, they care about them. What? This was revolutionary. And sometimes when we hear the Ten Commandments, we look back and go, oh, 4,000 years ago. Oh. You need to understand that in the time the world was being turned upside down, one command at a time. One law at a time. This was God saying, here's a new way to live, and I want to teach you the way of life. And of course, he builds on it, and of course, we're going to move towards the, the story of Jesus where it is ultimately fulfilled. But I also want us to understand that these ways are not plain archaic. They were revolutionary, and they can still revolutionize our lives today. How many of us like rules? Probably not many, hey? Rules are not the thing we're jumping up and down about. We don't necessarily even like institutions. You know, people telling us what to do. Uh, we've got a kind of inbred institutional cynicism. Like, what are you going to tell me to do? I don't want to be told what to do. I want to tell you a little story that can maybe help you see the, the, the heart that God has towards rules, towards a, a way of life. It was 2004. In fact, I think Mike and Jenny were uh, around at this time. But there was a, a, a huge tsunami 
Basically, there was an earth tremor. Is that right? It was this one, yeah. And uh, they went on their honeymoon, but they were away there uh, having some time out. Was it honeymoon? Okay, it was their honeymoon. Wow. And uh, this, this big tsunami hits off the coast of Indonesia. And uh, it's a terrible thing, right? Nobody wants a tsunami to hit. Funny story. Well, tragic story, actually. In an island called Ake, A-C-E-H, 167,000 people tragically lose their lives. Another island, just down, not far away, was hit by the very same wave that hit this island. Seven people died. Do you know what happened? Was that there was a tradition in this island whereby they would say to each other, the elders, the leaders of, these, uh, of this people had this story. They would tell their children and their children would tell their children and it was part of the culture of how they lived. Listen to what they would say. If a strong tremor occurs... And if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. That's what they would tell their children, their children, their children. So when a tremor occurred and the sea moved back, what did they do? They ran to the hills because they had been told one story after the next that that's what we do on this island. Amazingly, only seven people lost their lives. It's a beautiful depiction of what rules and inherited traditions and ways of doing things, how they can be used to bring life. God didn't give these laws and say, if you don't, I will hate you. We know that. We're gonna see that actually when God starts and reveals the law, he starts by saving them in his love. That's really the first part of this beautiful story, is that God saves by grace first and foremost. I want to divide my talk into three parts, basically, before the law, distinct because of the law, and then after the law. Firstly, before the law. Think about what happens in this, this moment before the law. God comes. He says, hey, guys, you are in trouble. I'm going to save you. They go, cool. We're strong. We can save ourselves. He goes, no, no, don't, don't, don't. All I need you to do is sacrifice a lamb. Sacrifice a lamb, and that will be symbolic that I am working on your behalf. I will uh, deal with your sin, and I will deal with the Pharaoh. I will defeat the powers that are working against you. All you need to do is nothing. Nothing. All you need to do is sacrifice a lamb on your behalf, and that will be symbolic of me fighting on your behalf. And God goes, and he does that, and he brings them into a beautiful victory. And in chapter 19, it says, don't you remember how I brought you out by eagle's wings? Don't you remember in verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is so important. When you're thinking of God teaching us his ways and teaching us what to do, because there often feels like a long list of things we need to do to remind ourselves whenever you talk about what has God called me to do, you first need to start with what has God already done. We never have a long list of what I need to do before I see the beautiful long list of what God has already done in his love for us. This is where you need to start. If you're new to faith, you are not walking into a community of people who believe that you need to do a whole bunch so that you can find acceptance in God. The New and the Old Testament speak loudly of this. Ephesians 2 verse 8, listen to this. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. 
Grace means you've done nothing. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're saved by grace, but you're created to do stuff. You see that? And those things God has prepared in advance for us to do. How amazing is this? There's these two pedals. I love pedals on bikes, and I don't ride enough. But first pedal, God pushes down. It is His grace. He moves into your life. You don't lift a finger. He just loves you. In the new covenant, we see it's through Jesus. He gives Himself to you on your behalf for your good. And He says, here I am, all of me. It's the story of grace. First pedal goes down, but the second pedal is you respond. You actually have some stuff you're called to do. You don't just sit there soaking. You actually receive and you move. And as you receive, you actually see more grace flows. And this pedal starts to find some traction as you move. God's grace, my uh, sort of complementary work. And we work together as we partner with God. But it must never be said that there's nothing to be done as a follower of Jesus. That's a fancy term called antinomianism. It simply says, I do nothing, God does everything, and I just sit and wait till he takes me. We should have actually just you know, held me under in the baptism pool, and uh, you know, that was the end, right? That's not the way it goes. He calls us into a new life of partnership, of change, of being distinct, where every other religion says you will be accepted because you obey. God calls us to obey because we're accepted, Make sense? This is the only place to start. You can't go into the law until first and foremost you've understood he gets us first. We respond second. But we do respond. We are called to something. Follower of Jesus, the world has been in a kind of interesting, and and I think history always has pendulum swings, probably 50 years ago. uh, I know my parents grew up in a church that was very rigid. It was all about what you can and can't do. Lived under a whole long list of things that were permissible, things that were not. And if you were doing it pretty well, that was the emphasis, then you're doing well. Then, you know, the, the pendulum swung the other way. And next thing, now it's about, it's all about grace. Who cares what you do? It's all about what Jesus has done. Do you know they're both right? We're called to live in that tension. Jesus' arms were stretched on the cross as he felt the tensions of life. His amazing grace, our amazing response, our partnering with him, pushing down both pedals. It's not either or, it's which is first. His grace is first. Our response is second. Are you with me? Good. But he does call us to respond. And I think he calls us to be distinct because of this way of the law that he brings in. This brand new nation have come out of Egypt and Egypt is all over them. There's so much going on in their lives and God comes to the slave nation who've been oppressed for 400 years and he looks at them and he says, you're my treasured possession. You are a royal priesthood. They would have been going, who are you talking to? They're not us. We don't even have, we can't even afford clothes. We're not a royal priesthood. We're a slave nation. And he goes, no, you. I'm looking at you. I love you, and I want you to understand that you are the object of my affection. He says, you are my treasured possession. 
That word treasured speaks of the fact that it actually sometimes is translated peculiar. You're, you're different. I've, I've set you aside to show you how much I love you. And peculiar says, I'm going to distinguish you. I'm going to set you aside so that the world can see through you how good I am. And do you know that it did happen in part? Much of the world has been impacted because of this faithful nation. We'll see that much of their life was unfaithful, and they didn't do a great job at receiving grace and then translating it into a a lifestyle. But God gives them this law that is meant to distinguish them. It's meant to cause them to put their shoulders back and go, us? Yes, Lord, thank you. Out of humility, we will be your priests. We will live out these 10 commandments. We will live out these other laws that you've given us that are going to distinguish us amongst the world so that the world will look in and say, wow. Not wow, Israel. Wow, God. Look how kind he is. Look how wise he is. He must surely be the one true God. They were gonna end out, they were gonna transition from ambassadors of Egypt ambassadors of the Pharaoh to becoming ambassadors of the king. And the law was the beginning of giving them the way of the kingdom. God's the king, and he's teaching them how to live in his new kingdom. Are you tracking with me here? It's pretty exciting. I, I think of how when my life is a little out of sync, um, before I get any fancy pastor Bible answers, I ask myself three questions. Eat, sleep, exercise. If my emotions are a bit off, if I'm a bit ratty, if things just aren't right, I go, have I been eating okay? Have I got some sleep? Am I exercising? Do you know how often that solves a lot of our problems? Like just stay healthy, eat well, and get some rest? You're like, oh yeah, that that solves it. Before you've done anything super spiritual or impressive, just get some sleep, get some good food. And, and I think the law is a bit like that for a nation. It's God saying to them, I'm going to give you some basic dietary ways. I'm going to just teach you the fundamentals of how to live so that you can basically stay out of the funk, so that you can basically flourish, so that you can basically live as a nation, so that you can begin to reveal my image to the world. Alec Mottier says it like this. He says, it's the likeness of God expressed in precepts and obedience to the law of the Lord that triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. That's your nature. You've been given the image of God in you. In other words, we live the truly human life when we obey the Lord's law. Jesus simplified it for us in Matthew chapter 22, and he said, you know, all the law, it's summed up in just love God, love your neighbor. But they they weren't there yet. They didn't quite understand it. And we'll talk about that. But let's look practically at these Ten Commandments. And I want to just fly through them and ask the questions, what is happening in each of these Ten Commandments? Jen Wilkins, a brilliant author, writes so much about the Ten Commandments. She's got a book, in fact, dedicated to explaining this. And so I want to just run through each of those and go, what's God trying to say to these people? Happy to do that? When last did you walk through the Ten Commandments? I hadn't done it in a while. And I want to talk about how God is making them distinct because of it. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the next one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. I think the first thing God is saying is you need to be distinct by allegiance. 
distinct by what you have connected or committed your heart to as the primary source, the primary allegiance. What are you connected to? What do you say is most valuable, most important? Who is your leader? In those days, it was pretty straightforward. You would worship multiple gods. It was foreign even for the people of Israel to walk out and be told there is only one God. How can that be? They'd come from Egypt, then there was a God over the Nile, there was a God of, of agriculture, there was a God of fertility, there was Pharaoh who was the God of kind of just leading the people, and he had a kind of divinity. There was a God for everything, and suddenly they're being told, no, there's one God, and he will fulfill every need in every area. Can you imagine, really, they, imagine, you, you know, like they traveling through the desert and they bump into another group of people and they go, no, no, we, we, we've, we've stopped that thing. We don't believe there's multiple gods. There's only one. They would have got such a squiff eye from any traveler by who's going, you, you guys have lost your mind. The one thing we know about the world is that there are multiple gods. And now you guys are coming and messing with our world saying there's only one. To us, it's like, yeah, you know, that's pretty standard. To them, it was a whole new way of viewing things. Because what they would have done is they would have traded. They would have said, you know what, God, that God, we'll give you this if you give us that. We'll trade this if you give us this. And they would have been bargaining with the multiple gods to keep their lives basically working out. And suddenly the one God of the Bible comes in and he says, the trade is over. You're wasting your time. You're trading with gods that are not gods at all. And you've given your allegiance to multiple gods when there is only one true God. Come into ultimate reality. Wake up and see that there is only one God, and I am God over every other thing. If you need fertility, if you need love, if you need relationship, if you need prosperity, if you need transformation, I am over it all. Don't bargain with other gods, which is why it's led to the next commandment. The second commandment says, don't make any idols out of your own hands. That was common practice. It was a trade in a way, whereby people would build these little wooden things. And depending on how much money and how big the project was, they would either make smaller or larger ones. And depending, some nations would have huge idols that they would build and they would all bow down to them and expect that this God would do something for them. And suddenly they're being told, waste of time, not actually going to work for you. There is nothing behind them. You cannot fashion stuff in your own hands and then worship it. Now we go, but really is that even relevant to us? Well, according to Romans, it's very relevant that we ourselves tend often to build things out of our own hands and then begin to give our deepest allegiance to them. Things like our careers, things like our children, things like our future desired relationships. And we tend to hold on and go, if I had that, if it was perfect. And then we make bargains with God. We trade with Him. We say, if you do this, I'll do that. And then we start to make these things that we, we sort of work out and we begin to bargain with the one true God. And he says, you know what? I'm God over it all. Give me your primary allegiance and know that I will be God over all of that stuff. Nothing you make with your hands deserves your primary allegiance, not even your sweetest, dearest little child. But whatever your thing is, I don't know. 
I do know that in all of our lives, we make things out of our own hands, whether it's money or whether it's relationships that we need sometimes to tap a meaning that we're just not meant to be tapping. Still with me? These commands, they're so old, but they're so fresh. They're so alive. Let's keep going. Third and fourth commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not uh, hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. I think we are called there, and he's calling the nation to be distinct by reverence, don't misuse the name of the Lord, and by rest. Two very, very radical concepts. Firstly, don't misuse the name of the Lord, your God. This was revolutionary in itself. But they were being told, God is important. And the name of a person, especially in those days, it, it was where they derived their character from. The name gave meaning. And so what you understood of a name was so crucial. Now, we might go, you know, I don't blaspheme. And then we sort of go to our latest Netflix thing and we go, you know, I don't say Jesus' name in vain. And we go, that's so, so I've ticked, you know. But I don't know if that's exactly what's being meant here. I think what's being meant here is that we do things in the name of God that don't actually honor God himself. And so we hide behind potentially our Christianity. And maybe a good, uh, silly, trite example is, hey, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time. I'll pray for you. Tick. Using the Lord's name in vain if I never prayed for that person. And I don't always pray for a person that I say I'll pray for. And so what am I doing is I'm, I'm kind of putting some virtue ahead and going, I'm a person who prays, I'm a spiritual person, but behind the scenes I've used the Lord's name in vain because I haven't thought about them again. I, I'm meant to revere his name. If I say I'm praying, I'm getting on my knees and I'm trusting for some breakthrough for you. And I've been quite diligent of late to go, I'll only say I'm praying for you if I really know I'm going to put time aside to actually pray for you. Why? Because I don't want to uh, just put some virtues out there that make people think I'm a better person than I am, that this Christian thing can just be a nice facade that impresses people, but I'm not praying, and I'm not living out this call. Let's be more honest about whose name we're using when it comes to that stuff. Maybe there's other better examples there, but I think that using the Lord's name in vain goes a little deeper than that. Hey, the next one was this call to rest. Call to rest. They had been slaving away seven days a week for 400 years. And there was no such thing as rest. And suddenly the God of the Bible comes in and he says, on the seventh day, you will rest. You will cease and you will delight. Cease and delight. Cease and delight. Stop doing what you've been doing. Stop tapping meaning from what you're creating with your hands and just cease and delight. It's not about sitting down, lying on the couch and watching Netflix till you can't stay awake any longer. It's about ceasing and delighting. It's stopping all the stuff that we would typically be doing to find meaning in our lives, to make us feel important, impressive, amazing, and put it all down and go, you know what, I'm just going to delight in the relationships I've got. I'm going to delight in the friends God's given me. I'm going to delight in the beauty of food, and I'm going to just delight in some real meaningful time with Him for 24 hours. I'm not going to do the stuff that makes me feel like I am progressing in the world. I'm going to do the stuff that makes me feel like God is the worker, and I'm the one who's not actually saving the world. It's harder than we think, right? 
Yes, 24 hours sounds like forever when you're told to not impress, achieve, do something. Jen Wilkins, she says it like this. Sabbath rest requires that we deny ourselves the material gain or sense of accomplishment a day of labor brings. Our natural inclination is to believe that we're keeping the world rotating on its axis, a mindset that feeds a ceaseless work ethic. Sabbath presses on that mindset. It's not merely rest that restores, but rest that reorientates. It reminds us that we are not God. We're not God. Some of us go, man, you know, that sounds all legalistic. I don't want to be legalistic. I would say that it's not legalistic. It's about saying yes to a new way. Nobody's calling us to, to, to dichotomize legalistic or, or a kind of grace. This is just about wisdom, the way of Jesus. Jesus says, come follow me. There's one good way to live, and there's one not so good way to live. Follow me into this, and you'll see the fruit of it in the days, weeks, and years to come. Okay, we're moving on. Honor your father and your mother so that it may, you may live long in the land the Lord has given you. You shall not murder nor commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Let's look at these. I think that this is God making people distinct by providing dignity again, putting dignity into humanity Dignity is a concept that is modern and fresh because of this. The Ten Commandments brought dignity to humanity. There was a time where it was okay to slaughter. It was okay to, to just deal ruthlessly with humanity. And God moves into a broken world and a broken society. And one dial at a time, he starts to tweak it and say, I'm coming into this broken world. You are brutal thugs, and I'm going to slowly switch off and switch on, switch off and switch on, and I'm going to coach you on how to live. And he says, let me start by providing dignity to every age grouping. You start honoring your father and your mother. Start honoring your father and your mother. Do you know what that does? It provides immense dignity to every age. Parents, this was something they were probably new to them, going, you mean they're my responsibility to, to raise and, and, and that means if they're meant to honor me, that means I better live a life worthy of honor. Yeah. Okay. Got to set an example. And, and then children, God is looking them in the eyes and going, hey, kids, you too are valuable in my eyes. Jesus exemplified this in his life where he calls the children to him and he says, let them come to me. And he begins to do something that had never been seen before. And he starts to say, Honor your parents. They are valuable. Honor your elders. Learn to live. Don't think that physical strength is the, is the measure of a human being. It's, uh, it's, it's what's going on in here. Learn to honor. Learn to live. Uh, taking the wisdom from those that have gone before. And he calls dignity to every age grouping. Kids would have heard this and gone, wow, my life matters. I don't need to wait till I'm, I'm in the army and, and have a sword in my hand till I'm valuable. I'm valuable right now. God has spoken to me. Amazing. You shall not murder. Come on, of course. Can't tell me that you shall not murder gets into the top. Like, who doesn't know that? The whole known world at the time didn't know that. You shall not murder suddenly puts dignity to human life. Even Moses was a murderer. Remember, he'd killed two Egyptians. He just did it. It was like, oh, well, the guy's getting in the way. Boof, done. God goes, no, no, humans matter. 
Murder is not a solution. I want to bring dignity to every single human being. And God, in his wisdom, starts to shape the mind of a human to go, every person has dignity and worth. The image of God exists in every person. This was revolutionary. You couldn't dispose of humans. You couldn't just get the ones out of the way that weren't strong or lovely. You had to rear them all and love them all. And you needed to treasure life. Murder is a non-option. I know it's a bit jarring, but I hope we can see this. This is something we should savor of the work of God in a, in a very uh, interesting world into which he's chosen to love us. You shall not commit adultery. Why not? Because adultery dismantles what God has joined together. And faithful, healthy marriages are good for community. A healthy marriage is able, listen to this, to give more than it takes from society. That's so important. God has created these ecosystems where when they are together, they provide more. That's something so important. We live in a world of takers. And the more we get rid of God, the more the victim mentality fills into our minds. Have you just listened to the news lately? Everybody is shouting, I deserve better. These are my rights. I deserve more. The Christian gospel says, no, I have been given everything. Now I become a contributor. Don't break marriage. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because this union is a union that is a fountainhead of life to society. Don't break it. If you mess with it, you start to begin to become takers, not givers. And the world needs more people contributing to the common whole because that will cause flourishing. Don't tamper with that thing. It's a fountainhead of grace to society. He begins to dignify every relationship status because he's looking at singles and he's going, your life matters, the way that you live it out. Don't commit adultery. Wait for the right person at the right time. God will provide, and I am dignifying your role right now. This is not about marriage or singleness. This is about God saying, I value every status and doing it my way. You shall not steal. Simply, I think God here is dignifying every human being's capacity to be content with what they got and to dignify everybody's capacity to earn. That's why we do TZN. That's why we, can't, we want to do everything we can to help people make a living. Why? Because we have God-given abilities to earn and to not covet other people's stuff. Nine, don't give false testimony. We fulfill the ninth command when we're honest in our speech, when we're talking about other people. Do we use our speech to subtly prop ourselves up and squeeze others down? Do we use our speech to kind of, you know, make it nicer for our lives and more difficult for others? Testimony in that day could have put someone uh, to death if you had given a false testimony, so it was more crucial then, at least in life kind of terms. But I know that all of us can have this tendency to just use our words to kind of just prop us up, just make us look a little cooler, better, more likable, and at the expense of others, and it's just not God's call. He's saying, be careful how you use your words. Dignify every person's outcome in life, and be okay with what you got. Okay, do not covet the last one. Rather than desiring the well-being of my neighbor, I desire his or her stuff, relationships, and circumstances. 
I think God saved a kicker for the last one. <laughs> I think he saved me when I am going to slam dunk them with this last one because we live in such a comparative world where we go and we look at our lives and we go, you know what, I've been through all this. I've made all these mistakes. If I'd just been given that lot, if I'd just had that hand up, if I'd just been to that school, if my parents had just done this, if just, and we go and we go and we become the victim and we forget that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness and every time we covet, we don't actually hurt the person who's got it. We hurt ourselves. We point and we go, I wish I had what they've got. And the three fingers pointing back at us are going, you're hurting yourself. You're leaving yourself more empty than ever before because you've got no gratitude. Don't covet. Dignify everyone's lot. Be grateful that any of us have anything. And then we begin to be generous and learn to live out of a place of contentment. Jesus in John 10 said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. The last bit is really short, but here we go. After the law. Do you know what happened to the Israelites? They daffed it almost immediately. It wasn't long before these people, I mean, can you imagine how silly they are? They've seen a trembling mountain. Moses has come down with these commandments of such wisdom, which maybe felt like gibberish to them at the time. And so they go, and you know what they say? They say, yes, we will do everything you've commanded. Amazing how, much, how quickly we can speak and yet how slowly we can actually act upon it. And they say, we'll do it all. Not long after, they're finding all the gold they can. They're chucking it into a furnace. They're melting it into the shape of a calf. And they're going, oh, calf, save us. You can do what that God of Moses can never do. And they try to worship another God. And slowly but surely, they go one command at a time, forgetting what they just said, we're in for. We do the same. We need grace. Grace not to give up, but grace to realize that we could never live up to that. And it's only in Jesus that we get this wonderful reality that he was the only one who could fulfill the law. He's the only one who could live out the perfection of those 10 commandments, not just doing them, but with the heart that they exist. You see, Jesus didn't come primarily to say, do all these things. He said in, in Matthew chapter five, he says, you've heard that it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already uh, done it uh, in your heart. He goes, I'm into the heart. It's not just about that. I've given you a whole new, better way. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you get angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Oh, my goodness. He just like doubles up on the intensity. Why does he do that? He's not trying to make us feel awful. He's trying to make us see that it's what's going on in our heart. What is motivating us? What makes us do what we do? He says, I'm into that. The law was given to get to your heart, to change you into a people of love. And all you did was you made this law into a bunch of rules that killed people. And the nation of Israel was squashed under all these rules by these Pharisees who said, you get God's love by doing, doing, doing. And Jesus comes and he says, no, you don't. You get God's love by receiving his grace and having a whole new heart transplant. 
You get a new heart. And that was what was prophesied in uh, Jeremiah. It says that he would give them a new heart. They were waiting for this beautiful thought. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be my, their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. That's what we're called into. That's what it means to live on this side of the cross. They didn't have it yet. They had the law, but they were waiting for this fulfillment. Who would put the law on their hearts? Oh, only Jesus Christ. Lovely way to land. Think about this. 50 days, what seems like almost to the day, they, were, they exodused. They exited Egypt. Straight after that, 50 days after, the blood of the Lamb has brought them redemption. Moses goes up and he gets the law and he comes down and they all go, yay, and none of them can do it. 50 days after Jesus gives his life on the cross, the true lamb that's slain, do you know what happens 50 days after? Pentecost. Jesus says, wait, the Holy Spirit will come and he will change you from the inside out. He will guide you into all truth. He will be your counselor. Is it a coincidence that 50 days after the lamb, 50 days after Jesus, there's the law given and then there's the spirit, there's help to live this thing out? I suggest not. I suggest that God thought this thing out very carefully and that as he pours out his spirit, he says, you're not alone. Don't give up. I will walk with you. And I will help you, and I will give you my counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will help you to live in my way. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. I'd love us to grow into a people of obedience, quick to move. Western society has said, you know what, everything happens in here. Who cares what happens here? Who cares what I do with my body? Who cares what happens to my finances? We become amazingly good at disconnecting our activities from our thought life. And the world says, what's happening in here is most important. And Jesus says, the whole thing matters to me. The whole thing. What you do with your relationships, what you do with your money, what you do with your sexuality. I'm into the whole lot. And I'm going to call you to just come follow me. So what I would suggest is start reading the Gospels and actually look at the life of Jesus. He's full of grace, and then he says, come follow me. I'll teach you how to, how to uh, read the Scriptures. I'll teach you how to love people. I'll teach you how to forgive. I'll teach you how to be loved. I'll teach you how to be generous. I'll teach you how to receive generosity. I'll teach you how to, how to uh, l- treat your body. I'll teach you how to treat others. I'll, I'll teach you how to, how to be married, how to be single. I'll teach you all those things. Just come follow me. Start with my grace. I accept you as you are. Now come, let's walk together. Let's walk in obedience to him. That is what he means by the law. He gives us a new way to live in his grace, empowered by the Spirit. Next, do you want to come up and we're going to sort of take a moment just to pray and to respond and to just have a gap to let God call us to not just be good listeners in the sense that we've got information, but that we turn it into a way of revelation and that we uh, move forward in that. Thank you so much. And thank this is such a beautiful invitation to being distinct and mm. this call to um, the, the way of Jesus and following him in that. And just in this quiet moment before we uh, head over to have coffee and fetch our kids, for those of us who have kids, 
the volume is about to uh, be turned up. But here in, in this quiet space, I want to invite you to take out uh, perhaps your phone if you take notes on a note app or if you've got a pen and paper uh, to take that out. You can actually do it. You're all like waiting for the next instruction. That's, that's all for now. And just for a couple of seconds, just prayerfully in your heart, ask God, what is the invitation to distinction that you are most pressing home for me today? Mm. And we just, in the quietness, trust that the Holy Spirit will freshly bring to mind one of those, those invitations to distinction. finish writing those and join me in a moment of of prayer. God, we freshly bring our hearts before you. You are a perfect, loving, and very good father. And you, you desire our flourishing and the flourishing of humanity. And we want to freshly step into that and, and follow the way that you have designed for life to happen, for community to happen, for relationships to happen. Thank you for your invitation to distinction. We receive that freshly. Thank you for your word. And I pray that even as we go into this next week, that your word would be alive to us and that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit. Mm. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. And um, please don't rush off. There is a reason why we put out those signs. If you want to turn around, it says, please use the side doors during the meeting and after the meeting. We want you to head out here so that you don't miss out on tea and coffee, as well as um, just meeting with some people and connecting. And uh, then if there were any of those dates or announcements that you wanted to double check on, um, you can uh, head over to find Lauren also in this area, and she can answer any questions that you have and especially around storage. If that was you and you've got a cupboard or a spare room, uh, you can make yourselves known to us. Otherwise, we will see you next week, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, everyone.